I'm Vincent Williams. I'm Len Webb. And we're your hosts of The Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast, every Black film ever made. This is our podcast documentary, The Class of 1989. 1989 was an important year in film when Hollywood would change forever thanks to six films about race. Some are obvious, like Do the Right Thing, Harlem Nights, and Glory. A few might surprise you, like A Dry White Season, Lean on Me, and Driving Miss Daisy. Join us as we explore what happened and what changed because of the class of 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege and honor to officially introduce for the first time graduating class. There's only one boss in this place, and that's me, the HNIC. Much a matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to blow your pinky toe. Oh, now you're going to shoot me in my pinky toe. You need to show me. Let me tell you the story. Right hand, left hand, good and evil. Hate, love, these five things, they go straight to the soul of man. No end in sight from this heat wave, so today the cash money word is chill. That's right, C-H-I-L-L. When you hear chill, call in at 555-L-O-B-E and you'll win cash money, honey. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy coming at you from what's last on your dial, but first in your hearts, and that's the quintessential truth, Ruth. The next record goes out to Radio Raheem. We love you, brother. I do love the ending of Do the Right Thing. I could write a dissertation on it. It says so much. Profound, sublime, but also chill. This entire series, we've been talking about how the seminal films of 1989, A Dry White Season, Do the Right Thing, Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, Harlem Nights, and Lean on Me, changed the field for black cinema going forward. Well, here are the receipts. Film critic, Tim Cogshell. So going into 1990, what do we get? We get, we get Charles Lane, Matty Rich. I think he goes on to make Inkwell, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, and we get, uh, you know, they're moving straight out of Brooklyn. You know, they're, they're sort of like little seminal films, those personal films, of course. Of course, um, uh, not long after that, we get uh, uh, John, John Singleton, of course, uh, US, coming out of USC, USC writing program with Boys, out of, uh, Boys in the Hood. And even, even uh, Leslie Harris made this wonderful little movie called Just Another Girl on the IRT. And, and even, even, even L.A. Rebellion filmmakers, Billy Woodbury's uh, Bless Their Little Heart. But there were a few of these, fil- of these films out of the L.A. Rebellion in the middle 80s. And those films were sort of like the platform for sort of like the rest of the 90s. Uh, but it all begins, in my mind, with Do the Right Thing. In the 1980s, we saw roughly 63 Black films. In the 90s, that number grew fourfold to 220. Spike Lee's continued success exploring the Black American experience with Jungle Fever, Crooklyn, and Get on the Bus, not to mention his collaborations with Denzel Washington in Mo Better Blues, He Got Game, and of course Malcolm X, spawned a genre of its own, like Spike. 
independent filmmakers standing one on top of another, vying for the attention of the masses as well as the bigger studios. If my pops finds out I got in trouble in school today, I'm definitely going to be on punishment. House Party in 1990 by Reggie Hudlin, Straight Outta Brooklyn in 91 by Maddie Rich, New Jack City also in 91 by Mario Van Peebles, Deep Cover in 92 by Bill Duke, 1993's Menace to Society by Alan Albert Hughes gave way to the romantic comedy I Like It Like That in 1994 by Darnell Martin the first studio-produced film to be directed by an African-American woman. Columbia Pictures invites you on an emotional journey to the heart of a family. If I hit you with this, is that gonna stop you from stealing? I don't know. Economics definitely played a role too as the advent of the home video market and the ascendance nationally of blockbuster video opened up a new distribution lane for Hollywood to create work marketed specifically for the African-American audience without worrying about the overseas market ignoring such films as was the unsubstantiated yet prominent fallacy of the time. All of a sudden, everywhere and anywhere, it was blackity black, black, black. Wesley Snipes, passenger 57 himself, knew it all along. Always bet on black. But why exactly? Maori Holmes of Black Star Projects has thoughts. You know, I have not thought about this until just now, and it might be obvious and somebody else may have talked about this, but it just occurs to me that we have the Rodney King riots. We have all of the things that are happening, um, thinking about Bensonhurst, thinking about just all the stuff that's happening in the late 80s, but using Rodney King really as the kind of national lightning rod. And I imagine thinking about how these corporations have acted post George Floyd, right? The number of black people that I know who are overbooked, <laughs> you know, like everyone is looking for black president, black director, black, you know, whatever. Everyone's trying to put a black face on everything at this time. They might've been doing this in the early nineties too. You know, we may have been too young to notice. It may not have been as obvious, but I'm curious if that wave of black directors comes because of that as well. I'm curious, mm. but that's just something because the George Floyd has been so obvious, right, to all of right, us. Right. Um, but maybe it was a similar thing. Maybe they were feeling guilty and started, you know, like, let's give a hand to these folks. But beyond that possibility, I do think, I mean, one of the things that's so amazing about Spike Lee at least I know about his career specifically is that he employed so many black people on his sets mm -hmm. and in the crew. And so, so many of those people then go on, you know, like Ernest Dickerson and Malik Saeed and, you know, so on and so forth. Those people go on to make work as well and then have their own crews and, you know, that kind of spawns a crew. So that may be part of it, but I don't necessarily see anything in these films that then leads to the kind of the renaissance of the early 90s. Journalist and radio personality Bobby Booker has thoughts of her own. Ah, yes. Black in 1989 was a very interesting time. And maybe that's why Do the Right Thing resonates with me because New York was so in the news. Brooklyn, 
Tawana Brawley. Um, I, I think the the first black mayor uh, of yeah. New York. There was a, a lot of stuff going on. Could Jesse Jackson running for president or something the year before? It was that was a, a a hot time in in America for black folk. And I would dare say that it it lays the foundation of of what we're dealing with today. Allow us to recap. David Dinkins was the first African-American elected mayor of New York City, an office he held from 1990 to 1993, and Tawana Brawley. On November 28, 1987, 15-year-old Tawana Brawley was found in a trash can after having been missing for four days from her home in Wappingers Falls, New York. She had racial slurs written on her body and was covered in feces. She accused four white men, including police officers and a prosecuting attorney, of having raped her. The charges received widespread national attention thanks to Brawley's advisors, most prominently Reverend Al Sharpton. After hearing evidence, a grand jury concluded in October 1988 that Brawley was not the victim of a forcible sexual assault and that she herself may have created the appearance of such an attack. She, along with her advisors, were sued successfully for defamation. Tawana Brawley and her family have continued to assert that the allegations were true. Tell them about Yusef Hawkins and the Benson Hercs riots. The riots took place in the predominantly Italian-American neighborhood of Bensonhurst in Brooklyn, New York, in August of 1989, in response to the fatal attack on 16-year-old Yusef Hawkins. Hawkins, his younger brother and two friends, following up on a newspaper ad for a used car, were attacked by a crowd of 10 to 30 white youths, at least seven of them wielding baseball bats. One, armed with a handgun, shot Hawkins twice in the chest, killing him. The riots weren't initiated by the protesters that marched through the neighborhood, led by Reverend Al Sharpton, who was disturbed by the legal outcome of the incident, but by the boys that stood accused of and were ultimately convicted for the violence, who resented the marches through their streets. Particularly 19-year-old Keith Mundello, who both said that he would, quote, blow the heads off the nigger bastards. Unfortunately, this was not the first racially motivated murder of a young black man in New York City in the 80s. It was the third since 1982. And this was followed by months of protest. And of course, this incident happened three weeks after the release of Do the Right Thing in Brooklyn. It was feared that black people, tensions high from the recent unrest, would be incited to riot with the release of Do the Right Thing, stirred by the heated, racially motivated moments on screen, and the suggestion was that they would kill white people and destroy property. But a few miles from where the film was shot, it would be the white people killing black people. And Rodney King? On March 3, 1991, members of the Los Angeles Police Department pulled over Rodney King after a high-speed pursuit. He was stopped for driving while intoxicated 
and beaten repeatedly with tasers, batons, and multiple kicks. Unknown to the police, an innocent bystander with a loaded movie camera, George Holliday, filmed the entire incident from his balcony and sent the footage to local news station KTLA. Soon, the video was being shown literally all over the world. The commanding officer at the scene, Stacy Coombs, was arrested and convicted for willfully permitting and failing to take action to stop an unlawful assault. He was sentenced to 30 months for violating King's civil rights. At a press conference, Los Angeles police chief at the time, Daryl Gates, announced that the four officers directly involved with the beating, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, Theodore Prisino, and Rolando Solano, would be disciplined for use of excessive force and that three would face criminal charges. Of these, three were acquitted. The jury failed to reach a verdict on one charge for the fourth. Within hours, Los Angeles erupted in weeks of, what's the word they use? Rebelling. So we got one, black folks had had enough, so studios became engaged and funded some black voices. And two, there's Spike Lee, the one-man film school who got black folks the jobs that allowed them to get their second jobs. Because once you have experience, that can't be the reason they're not going to hire you, especially on a film that is this profitable. Philadelphia Television News reporter Denise James speaks to the journeyman's opportunity of working with Spike Lee. I think it was 80s where we started to see a little bit, see more of those films do well. And they saw that we would go to them. And not just that, because of people like Spike, Black people were learning how to make films. They were learning how to shoot their own videos. And so the more people you have behind the scenes creates the opportunity for more of those films to be made, even though the jobs weren't coming to them regularly and they still weren't in the academy, included in the voting and all that in the same way that we've seen more of in recent years. I think that decade coming out of the 60s and the 70s, that decade where Spike and, and folks like Spike started making films and hiring people to do the work, then those folks are also more in the, on the inside and choosing people to be out front in films and be part of editing, graphics. The music came a, a, a lot later. I mean, we had Claudine and Curtis Mayfield and, and, and Isaac Hayes making music. This getting the first job problem is a real thing. Venerable character actor and director Bill Duke spoke with us about how he went from appearing in car wash to working behind the camera. When I was in New York, um, I wrote some of my own plays and I directed them. And I wrote, and then there other people's plays I directed also in theater. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved directing, but I was intimidated by the cameras and the lights and the sound and like the technical aspects of it. The technical aspect, you know, and um, 
So I applied for the American Film Institute and I got in. And I was lucky to get in when Tony Vallani was a genius. He ran the school and uh, really taught me about editing first. No, smart. That's what he taught me because yeah. you, know, you can have all the passion that you want. Mm. But when you're cutting the film, you don't have what you need. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you learn about coverage. That's exactly right. Coverage, yeah. well, that's right. So he taught me that and I figured out of AFI, um, I had a film, small film, and I won a couple of awards, but um, I went to the networks and studios, they wouldn't, um, they said, we'll give you your second job, but not your first. Wow. So I got depressed and went away. I do meditation, went to a meditation retreat. I was there for a week or two. And uh, my agent called me and said, hey, David Jacobs over at uh, Knott's Landing wants to talk to you. Knott's Landing, wow. Right. And so I got back as soon as I could, and the next week I was in David Jacobs' office. But the meeting only lasts like five minutes. I told my agent, I said, what is, you know, what's this crap? You know, he's not interested in me, et cetera, da 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 A week later, my agent calls me and says that David Jacobs wants me to direct an episode of Knott's Landing. I said, whoa. <laughs> okay, so I was in pre-production for one week, and at the last day of pre-production, I think his name was Joel Wallenstein, um, the producer came in and said, hey, Bill, you did a great job in pre-production. We could tell that you were going to be a good director by your reel. I said, wow. wow. He said, the reel that you submitted. I said, no, 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 I just got an AFI. I only have one. He said, whoa, whoa wait a minute. He goes into David Jacobs' office. David had mixed up my film with a different reel. Oh, wow. Oh. That's how I got my first job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. Right. Oh, my God. So your first job was your second job. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, that's how I got my first job. And what's wild is while he's out here getting killed in Predator and Commando, He's directing Knott's Landing, Miami Vice, Brewster's Place, and The Outsider, and some TV movies such as The Killing Floor and A Raisin in the Sun. Then in 1991, A Rage in Harlem, Bill Duke's first theatrical release. The Good Brother. Thank you for not putting obstacles in my way, such as women. The Bad Brothers. I got one rule in life. Don't give nothing to nobody. And one ugly mother. Who's that? That's his mama. Damn! They're all after the sister with a chest of stolen gold. Do we know you? Not this lifetime. Oh! Looks like there's gonna be a rage in Harlem. Did you hear what they said? Now he's off to the races. Deep cover, sister act two, hoodlum, solid, high quality box office successes right after he got his first job. Perhaps the younger generation of filmmakers saw films like Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, and even Lean On Me as crumbs from the table and found they had something different to say. Movie critic Tim Cogshell said some people say that disembodied poor black people are the problem in black communities. But black people might say the problem is poverty and segregation. 
It's also important to realize there's a big collision of ideas here. We have the classic, traditional, telling black stories through a white lens with driving Miss Daisy, Glory, and a dry white season. No point of order, point of order. Usain Palsy is being as nuanced as she can with a dry white season. Noted. Next. Telling stories through a black lens, like Do the Right Thing, Harlem Nights, and arguably Lean On Me. Arguably. Lean on me because with a white director and screenwriter with hindsight, not star for black content, we could pick some nits with that film. This guy wrote the 1988 film Colors, too. The gangs rule the streets. The streets are at war. The war must be stopped. We want a uniform presence out in the street. They're flying their colors. The L.A. gang film through the lens of the cops, that tracks. But on the other hand, A Dry White Season is a film with a white lens directed by a black woman. And arguably, it sees the humanity of more black characters than you might expect. Elizabeth Wellington is here talking about the lens of this new generation. I don't know if we even had the vocabulary back then. Like we were seeing things through the white gaze that we even know we were looking at it through the white gaze. Like did we like now we can look back and say, oh, that's definitely the white right, gaze. Right. But at the time in 1989. Well, so much of what you're saying, you know, the respectability politics and everything, like all of that is 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 if if you're not saying it's the gaze itself, I, I think we had to come to an understanding right now where we could even have a conversation without white people being a factor. Like they're always just, you, you know, you know, we talk Looking about- around, ethos. Right. You know, we talk about unapologetic blackness now, no. but in my life, what that means is it's black people creating art for black people. And this is the primary, like we're creating it for us. And if white people show up, that's fine, but wipe your feet before you come in because you're a guest. And we weren't at that point in the, in the 90s. And, and maybe Spike Lee was the closest one there, but I think it was Spike Lee's gaze. I think it wasn't a black gaze. It was, and it definitely wasn't a black woman's gaze. It was a Spike Lee gaze, which we all can like, I think as individuals, we can call question to. I wouldn't call that black art for black people. I think that was kind of Spike Lee's art. I think black people had some of the same thoughts as white people in the in the film industry you know what i mean like it wasn't like we're making this movie for black people white people and if black people come i thought i think in everybody's mind they were making the movies for all people but i think now black people are like nah we have a different experience and we're gonna live through that experience and you're gonna either go with us on this journey and if you don't that's fine so the question is did these films happen because of 1989 or in spite of 1989. It's difficult to determine 100% of intent, but what's clear is that the VHS and later the DVD market made films more lucrative. And Spike Lee had a $100 million box office with a $6 million film. And we can credit these visionaries, the artists, for moving the needle for us. But as critic Tim Cogshell and Elizabeth Wellington have pointed out, a critical lens is put on who's making the films and what they have to say about society. 
So Green Book wins the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2018, but its box office was stunted and the award contentious because the film was suspect at best. You're being generous. I try. So you're saying that in the last 30 years, the culture of what's acceptable and what's not has changed? I mean, it's not cinema, but we've all willingly watched The Dukes of Hazard, right? Just a good old boy Never meaning no harm you got something against good old boys? <laughs> anyway, that soon changed. Right, because Boomerang was groundbreaking for its depiction of young black professionals dealing with everyday problems of love, work, and family. Problems that weren't white people. Haven't you ever seen a guy and thought he was attractive? Women do stuff like that. You see other girls and you say, oh, she's cute, or her hair is nice, but guys don't see other guys and go, oh, look at his shoulders. They don't, we don't do that. <laughs> And Malcolm X was a tremendous achievement for being an outstanding film, just as much for getting made in the first place. These are the questions. These are the questions you and I have to ask. How did we get this mind? You're not an American. You're an African who happens to be an American. You have to understand the difference. We didn't come over on the, the Nita, the Pinta, and the, and, the, and the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Landed right on top of us. 90s highlights such as Deep Cover, Eve's Bayou, and Fresh reimagined film noir in settings like crime drama, Southern Gothic, and urban. A cuckoo comedy like Baps can sit beside the action thriller Set It Off, both showcasing the incredible diaspora of the African-American actress landscape. And Julie Dash, Casey Lemons, Gina Prince-Bythewood, Dee Rez, Ava DuVernay and others followed director Usain Palsy's footsteps to forge a solid foundation upon which upcoming filmmakers and showrunners such as Nia DaCosta, Shonda Rhimes, Lena Waithe, and more would proudly make their mark in Hollywood. DuVernay actually gives the world his first significant Martin Luther King bio in years in 2014 with Selma. Whether Jimmy Lee Jackson or James Reed the four blameless little girls struck down before they had even begun. Because producer Steven Spielberg literally owns the movie rights to MLK's speeches, DuVernay rewrites them for actor David Oyelowo, who delivers them with the same gravitas and weight as King. For truth, rush to earth will rise again. When will we be free? Soon and very soon. Because you shall reap what you sow. I forgot about that. But by hook or by crook, Black people find a way to tell their own stories. Black people telling unapologetically Black stories. With so many filmmakers to keep an eye on. There you have it, folks. 1989 and all the children that it birthed. It was an important year for cinema. The year the floodgates open.
That does it for this episode of The Class of 1989. Tune in next week for episode six, The 1989 Class Reunion. The Class of 1989 is produced by Len Webb, Vincent Williams, and Mo Poplar. Written by Len Webb, Vincent Williams, and Maurice Poplar. Editing by Len Webb with mixing and mastering by Chris Bonellio. Production help from Jordan Aaron. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Matt Keeley, and Annabella Pina. Music by Alexa Gold. Art by Tom Grillo. Special thanks to Dan Christo. Executive produced by Jeff Umbrell and The Podglomerate. Until next time, he's Vincent, I'm Len, and in parting, we say, we'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>